All right. Good morning. It is. Uh, it's so good to see some college students here. It's been a long time, but <laughs> thank you uh, so much for for being here. I know some of you guys we haven't seen since um, March 2020. So. That is a long time, and uh, we are just overjoyed that you have decided to come back. <laughs> so, um, before we uh, get into today's sermon, I have an uh, important announcement to make. Um, if you are a parent, you may have heard this announcement already, uh, but recently our children's ministry director, Bethany Donaldson, uh, has decided to step down from that role. And um, she has served faithfully in that role for a long time. It's been, I think, about six years. So that is a long time uh, to be doing that. And, you know, during that time, she has planned Sunday school classes. Uh, she's organized volunteers. She's put together uh, vacation Bible schools and Good Friday events and Christmas events for the kids, and um, she's, she's formulated policies to help keep our kids safe. Um, she has been such a blessing to our church for a very long time. And uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Now, Bethany is not a fan of being the center of attention, so I can promise you that even though she is not able to be here this week, she is more than fine with this being the week that this is announced, okay? Um, but Bethany will probably hear this at some point, so I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you, Bethany. We are so grateful. <laughs> Keith uh, put together some pictures from the last six years of uh, Bethany's ministry, which have been playing behind me. Um, Oh, look at little Claire there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we've reached it yet. I remember my first VBS here, there was a barnyard theme, and there were llamas at the church. I will never forget that. <laughs> um, now, I think it goes without saying that over the last year and a half, COVID has made it really difficult to do kids' ministry. Uh, it's made it more difficult to do it safely. It's made it more difficult to find volunteers. And it's made it hard to predict when there will actually be kids to minister to. Um, so we're kind of in a tough spot right now because, you know, in order to have a kids ministry every Sunday, we need two things. We need volunteers and we need kids. And... Recently, over the last few months, both of those have been in short supply. Um, now, if you ask me, Ryan, in your church, what would you prefer to have first, volunteers or a bunch of kids? I would say, without question, volunteers. Because what happens when you don't have volunteers is kids might show up, new families might show up, but if there's no volunteers that are ready to minister to them on that Sunday morning, they might just move on to another place, right? 
So we're in this tough spot where in order to see our kids' ministry look like this again, we really need a team of committed people who will say, I will volunteer to be downstairs with whatever amount of kids God provides, you know, from zero to 50, <laughs> and I will be there. I'll be there once a month. I'll be there every other month. I will commit to that. And I think if we have a team like that in place, that over time, we will be blessed to be able to take pictures like these again. Um, but kids' ministry can't happen without consistent volunteers. It just doesn't work. So, I'm not trying to guilt or shame anyone into serving in this way. But if you look at these pictures and you think, ah, oh, I would love to be a part of making that happen again, um, please let me know. Over the next couple weeks and months, we're going to be trying to build a team of volunteers uh, so that we can, we can build up our kids' ministry again. But we, we can't, Keith and I can't do it alone. There's just, there's no way. So we need a team. So if you're interested, email me, ryan at stpaulswire.org. Um, our kids are our future, right? We want to help build a foundation for faith for them here. So if that sounds exciting to you, please let me know. All right. So let's get into Galatians. Uh, we have been in this book now for eight weeks. And uh, I think that this is probably the second to last message. We're getting close to the end. We're going to pick up right where we left off last which is chapter 5, starting in verse 13, Galatians 5, 13. If you have your own Bible, I encourage you to make your way there. It'll be up on the slides, but still, it's nice to have it right in front of you. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this chance to open the scriptures together. And Lord, right now, we just want to invite you to work in our hearts Lord, uh, we want you to reveal yourself to us and to reveal your, your plans for us. <clears throat> God, we want to be transformed. We want to be challenged. And I just pray that you'd help us to be attentive uh, to what it is that you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you, you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. All right, so up until this point, Paul has been making a case for why it is not necessary for followers of Christ to obey all of the Mosaic law. And that's what we've been harping on every week throughout this series, right? That's his main goal. And in fact, Paul has said that if we go back to focusing on the law, we're focusing on, on the wrong thing. We're failing to recognize the significance of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection if we turn back to the Mosaic law. That Old Testament law, it had a purpose, but its purpose was temporary. Uh, Paul compares it to a babysitter. And, you know, it's appropriate to have a babysitter for a while, but a certain point comes in your life where it's no longer appropriate to have a babysitter. And what Paul is saying is because Christ has come, um, a level of maturity is available to us that makes going back to the Mosaic Law like going back to a babysitter when we're an adult. Okay? It's, not, it's not something that we should be turning back to. Now for some of us, that raises the question, okay, well if we're not under the law anymore, does that mean that we can just do whatever we want? Is the only sin now to think that something's a sin? Is one way of putting that. Well, this passage makes it very clear that that is not true. Okay? How we live does matter. It matters very much. Just because we've been set free from the law doesn't mean we have this license to just do anything. Um, there's that warning in verse 21. You might have noticed it. It's uh, sobering, sobering words. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, you know, as I look at that list of these acts of the flesh, as Paul call, calls them, I, I see Paul speaking to people on both sides of a continuum. So on one side, you have the people who just see freedom from the Mosaic law as this license to do anything, right? Maybe they thought, well, now that we're free from the Mosaic law, it's acceptable to do things like go to prostitutes and get drunk at wild parties and worship idols. You know, we're free from the law. We can do whatever we want. And then on the other side of the continuum... Paul lists sins that would be more common for people who are legalistic, who are people who are trying to cling to the Mosaic law. Uh, things like, like envy and jealousy and being filled with selfish ambition. As Paul has described these false teachers, that's how he's described them. He says that they're envious and, and full of selfish ambition. And they're causing dissensions and factions in, in the church. Right? And, and so Paul says to both of these kinds of people, the anything goes kind of people and the law-oriented people, and he says, look, if your lives are characterized by these kinds of things, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want to be clear. Paul is not saying that we have to be perfect 
in order to be saved. Uh, he's also not saying that we can save ourselves in our own strength, on our own power. He's not saying that. But he is saying that when we have real faith in Jesus, that faith influences the way that we live. There is a relationship between real faith and who we are. Now, unfortunately, I think that in some branches of the church, this disconnect has, has happened, where we think that it's possible to have faith, but not have that influence our character. And the Bible just doesn't talk like that at all. You know, if you say, I have faith in my doctor, but every time your doctor writes a prescription, you just throw it in the trash. Or every time your doctor gives you advice, you just go, nah, I don't want to do that. Do you really have faith in your doctor? No, right? Same with Jesus. If every time Jesus gives us a prescription for how to live our lives, we just say, nah, I'm not interested in that. Can we really say that we have faith in him? Can we really say that we trust him? You know, Jesus says, if you have the kind of faith that leads you to just say, ah, I'll just do my own thing, that that's not really faith at all. And he says that kind of faith is like a house that's built on sand. When hard times come, it just falls apart. So the New Testament teaches that we are saved from sin and death by the grace of God. By the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus. But you will not find any place in the New Testament that teaches that how we live doesn't matter. You just won't find that. Because faith affects us. It affects our character. It affects the way we live. Let's go back to the top of the passage. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Okay, meaning free from the Old Testament Mosaic law. But, Paul says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Now, when Paul says the flesh, I don't want us to get the wrong idea about what he means. Some people hear the word flesh and they think he's saying that there's something inherently bad about our bodies or about the physical world. And that's not true at all. Right? God created our bodies. He created the physical world. And when he created it, what did he say? He said, this is good. That's what it says in the book of Genesis, right? He creates it all. He says, it's, it's good. It's very good. God likes the physical world. It was his idea. He made it. So when Paul says the flesh, don't think physical stuff. Don't even just think physical desires. Think the desires we have that run contrary to God's will, okay? The flesh is a shorthand way of saying the sinful nature. That's what that is. And we can understand more what Paul means by the flesh by looking at what he contrasts the flesh with. What does he say? Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So what does it mean to indulge the flesh? It means to do the opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay? The opposite of serving one another humbly in love. 
That's what it means to indulge the flesh. It means to do whatever you want without any concern for whether that harms people around you. That's what that is. How we live matters, and we're called to live a life of love. Now, I want us to notice that Paul sees us as having three ways of life available to us. And to kind of put it in modern spiritual language, I'll say three modes of consciousness for how we can operate. Life under the law. Um, life in the flesh, and life in the spirit. Now, life under the law is, of course, when you're trying to follow all of the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. Um, and I know that, you know, most of us today aren't trying to do that, but we can still have a life under the law kind of mindset, right? It's, it's a life where our faith is all about rules and regulations, do's and don'ts. Life in the flesh is the kind of life where you're just all about seeking your own desires. And then, of course, life in the spirit is the kind of life where you live to follow Jesus, and that means a life of love. Now let me ask, which mode of consciousness do you spend the most time in? Life under the law, life in the flesh, life in the spirit. Which one? Because Paul has made it clear in this letter that it's possible to bounce from one mode of consciousness to another. It's not like you become a Christian or you put your faith in Jesus and then you're just locked into life in the Spirit, right? How do we know that? Well, we know that because the Galatians received the Holy Spirit, but then they fell into life under the law. And that's why Paul wrote Galatians, because he needed to correct them, right? And we also know from what Paul says there that that there's always this war between the flesh and the spirit in us. Like, we have a choice to make. We can listen more to the spirit or we can listen more to our flesh. Uh, remember, he, he, he described this constant war when he said, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in, in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And I want us to notice that warning there. You are not to do whatever you want. Why? Because there's this war that's going on. If the only thing that you use to direct yourself is what you want, well, sometimes you might end up listening to the flesh more than you're listening to the spirit. It's not that your desires are always wrong. It's just that you've got competing desires in you. And this is true of every believer, right? So this war is going on. So you can't just do whatever you want. You have to listen to the spirit. Okay, so we all have this potential to bounce from one mode of consciousness to another. Sometimes you might bounce from one to the other multiple times in a day, or even in an hour. <clears throat> now, if we profess to be Christians, of course, the mode of consciousness that we should be operating in is the spirit. But is that the mode that we're really operating in? That's the question that I want us to think about today. So let's talk a little bit more about what it looks like to be operating in these modes. How do you know that you're operating mostly in life under the law mode? Well, I think there's two hints that you're in that mode. 
The first one is that your life is constantly characterized by feelings of guilt and shame. If you cannot stop thinking about mistakes you've made in the past, even though you've confessed them to God, even though you've done what you can to make things right, that is a sign that you are living under the law. Right? Rather than recognizing the fact that Jesus died for your sins, that there is forgiveness available for you, and moving into life with the Spirit, you are sitting in this state of condemnation, right? Under the law. That's what you're thinking about all the time. And that is a terrible place to try to live from. Okay? When you're constantly carrying guilt and shame in your heart, it makes you more anxious. It makes you more fearful. It makes it hard for you to have joy and peace. Okay, so that's the first hint that you're living under the law. Second hint that you're living under the law is that you're self-righteous. You feel superior to everybody else. You feel better than them. And you feel angry at them. You look down on them with contempt because they don't follow the rules as well as you do. Right? Basically, if you have a, a, a living under the law mindset, these are really the two only options for how you're going to live, right? Because if your whole, whole faith is based on there are rules and we need to follow them, do's and don'ts, that's the whole thing, you're either going to feel like a failure because you're not measuring up and you're going to have self-hatred, or you're going to get angry at other people for not following the rules, feel like you're better than everybody else, become puffed up and prideful. Right? So those are the two signs that you're living life under the law. Another sign that you might be living life under the law is that you think of your relationship with God in a very legal way. Like it's a contract and you've got to have all the, the uh, boxes checked. You know, I'll give you an example. I remember back when I was in college, I, I knew some people who were having this debate over what kind of formula should be said over you when you're baptized? And some people said, well, when you're baptized, the, the pastor, the minister is supposed to say, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. And they, they had a scripture passage to support this. And on the other side of the debate were these people who said, well, Jesus said, go into all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? So when you're baptized, somebody should say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I remember there was this one young woman involved in this debate who became convinced that she had been baptized in the wrong way, with the wrong formula. And this devastated her. And it devastated her so much that she wanted to plan to have another baptism, <laughs> to be rebaptized, to make things right. See, that's the sign of the legal mindset, right? Because it's a mindset that says God is kind of like a judge, and there's a contract, and I have to get every part of the contract right, right? And if the right thing isn't said over me at the right time, it doesn't matter what's in my heart. God won't accept me. I won't be part of the family. It's got to be the right formula, right? That's the legal mindset. It's sad. It's life under the law. It's not what God calls us to. <clears throat> 
All right, now what does it look like when you're operating in the flesh? Well, when you're operating in the flesh, the main thing that directs your life is your desires. And you don't think much beyond that. So, you know, if you're feeling lustful, you follow your desires, and that usually leads you to some kind of sexual immorality or debauchery, right? If you are feeling a desire for control, control of things that you cannot control, you may turn to false religion to try and gain a sense of control. That's why Paul talks about idolatry and witchcraft, right? These were attempts to gain favor with God or the spirits that were false ways of doing that, right? Why? Because people wanted control. These are the things people turn to. You know, if you feel desires like anger or fear and you're in the flesh, your anger and your fear is going to lead to fits of rage and jealousy and dissensions and factions and envies, envy and all that kind of thing. Uh, if you feel a desire to alleviate your pain and just feel some pleasure, right? You might indulge in substance abuse. You might drink way too much and go to wild parties and that sort of thing. So when you're operating in the flesh, your desires just kind of reign unchecked and they carry you wherever they want to take you. Which a lot of the time is to destruction. And then there is the mode that we're supposed to be living in. The spirit. And this is the mode of consciousness where we are aware of God. And, and we are not just aware of God, right? But we recognize that God is with us, that he's for us, that he loves us, that he sent his son to die for us. Paul has said in a previous chapter that when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, the Holy Spirit cries out to God, Abba, Father. And Abba was the, the, the title that people would use to refer to their dads. It's like dad, right? So when the spirit is living on, in us, when we are in that mode of consciousness, the life under the spirit, one of the primary things that happens is that we come to see God as dad. We come to see God as our loving parent, right? We come to see the creator of the universe in that way as a loving parent that we can trust. And when we live in that mode of consciousness, Paul says that the result of it is it produces this kind of thing. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Abba-Father relationship with God produces in us. Now, a lot of sermon series have been done in a lot of churches about the fruit of the Spirit, what the fruit of the Spirit is exactly, what it looks like in action. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. A lot of good sermon series have been done. But I honestly don't feel a need to do that this morning. I think when we read those words, we have a pretty good sense of what they mean. And we don't have to pick them all apart. But what we might need to realize is just how important those qualities are to the life of faith as a follower of Jesus. They are central. They are essential, right? That is what spiritual maturity looks like. Yet notice, right, there's a lot of things Paul could have mentioned there that he doesn't. He doesn't say that the fruit of the Spirit is being super smart, 
I remember once I went to this kind of strange church-adjacent gathering in New York City once, and it was led by a doctor of philosophy, and it was a bunch, mostly a bunch of seminarians getting together and you know, having conversations that probably the average person would have no idea what they were talking about. I didn't even understand a lot of what people were talking about there. And uh, afterwards, I was talking to the leader of the event, and he was, you know, he was friendly and everything, and at the end, he said, well, I want you to come back, you know, because we want smart people here. And I was flattered that he thought I might be in that category. But I also thought, that's not really the kind of thing that we're supposed to build a community around, right? That we're all super smart. Because that's not what spiritual maturity looks like. I mean, yes, we should submit our intelligence and our, our mental reasoning to God, right? We should, we should think well to the glory of God, right? But real spiritual maturity isn't about having a high IQ or being able to talk about, you know, complicated philosophical concepts or anything like that. So Paul doesn't say anything about being super smart. He doesn't say anything about being able to gather a big crowd. He doesn't say anything about being a really smooth, entertaining public speaker. Uh, he doesn't say anything about being able to prophesy about the future or being able to perform miracles. He doesn't say anything about making a lot of money or being healthy and free from disease. He doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. Now, the Holy Spirit does sometimes do those things in people's lives. But he, he does those things in some Christians' lives. These are the things that he's working to do in all Christians' lives. And these are the real signs of spiritual maturity. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, Jesus said that if you want to know if a spiritual leader is a good spiritual leader, he said you will know them by their fruits. And one of the sad things, I think, about American Christianity is that many of us have assumed that when Jesus said that, he meant, you will know the leader by how successful the ministry is, by how many people are coming, by how many baptisms are taking place, by how many miraculous, cool things are going on. And... Ironically, Jesus specifically said, there will be people who will do all those kinds of things in my name, but they won't know me, right? Because that's not the actual fruit he's talking about. The actual fruit he's talking about is the character. It's this kind of stuff. So this leads to the question, right? How do we develop more of this kind of fruit in our lives? How do we do that? Well, we might think, well, this is the fruit of the Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is the one that produces it, which means I just wait for him to do it. But it probably won't surprise you that I don't think that's the right way to think about it. Right? <clears throat> As any fruit farmer would be able to tell you, there are things that they can do or not do that help to produce fruit. Now, there's things that they have no control over, right? Farmers don't make seeds. 
Farmers didn't create the process of photosynthesis. They have no control over that, right? And similarly, the Holy Spirit is like what generates that process of photosynthesis, what creates the seeds, right? But like farmers, there are still things we can do. We can water the seeds. We can cultivate the plants as they grow, right? We can do things that help or hinder the Spirit's work in our lives. The Spirit is always working to naturally produce this kind of fruit in us, but there's things that we can do to make it much harder for the Spirit to do that, right? If we live in the Spirit, if we live in these, these lives, this mode of consciousness where we're, where we're aware of God as our Abba and we're trusting Him and we're mindful of Him, then this kind of fruit automatically grows, But if we slip into those two other modes of consciousness, life under the law and life in the flesh, then it messes things up, right? We harm the growth of that fruit. It's like depriving a fruit tree of water and sunlight. It makes it harder for the fruit to grow. And if we really want the Holy Spirit to produce these things in us, we have to make an effort to stop living in the law and living in the flesh. And the way that we do that is by doing what Jesus told us to do, right? He said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. Which means, remember me. Talk to me. Orient your life around me. Meditate on what I said. Read what I said. Think about what I said. Obey what I said. Trust me, right? About 2,000 years ago, one way of thinking about this is that Jesus started a wave, right? He created this wave through his, his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection. And it, to abide in Jesus is to choose to say, I want to step into that wave and I want it to crash over me and I want to be immersed in it. I want my life to be submerged in Jesus' life. I want his teaching, his death and resurrection to be what shapes me, what forms me. What guides me? I want those things to be what helps me to make, me, make sense of my life. Right? That's what it means to abide. And when we abide in Jesus, when we cultivate that awareness of God every day, those are the conditions that allow that fruit of the Spirit to grow. You know, you cannot abide in Jesus for any significant period of time without all of these things growing in you there's a necessary relationship between those two things. You know, I know for me, when I'm not abiding in Jesus, when I'm not choosing to focus my consciousness on God and, and, and what, you know, what Jesus has done for me, it, I start to feel like an orphan in the universe. I start to feel alone. And when I feel alone in the universe... Every pain and frustration I have gets magnified. You know, life is already hard. But if I just feel like I'm just moving through this thing on my own power alone, everything is harder. Everything's worse. You know, I, I lose my temper easier. I get afraid easier. I have a harder time considering anybody other than myself. But when I cultivate awareness that God is my Abba, when I trust in that, 
then the fruit inevitably grows. Fear starts to go away. Anxiousness uh, reduces. I, I, my temper becomes less volatile. So I want to encourage us this morning. This is the heart of the message. If you trust in Jesus, you can live in the Spirit. Sometimes we think we can't actually do it. We can do it. You can't do it perfectly. But the choice is before you, and you can make that choice to do it a lot. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to make a conscious choice to turn away from life under the law or life in the flesh. And that is not always easy. Sometimes it's, it takes persistence. It takes work. There's a war going on within you. But the Spirit is willing to lead you. And what he produces in your life is so much better than that guilt and that shame and that self-righteousness and that fear and that anger and that envy, right? And that self-indulgence. So let him lead you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this reminder that there is power available to us uh, to, to turn from life in the flesh and life under the law. And that when we tap into that power, um, there's something so good for us. Those qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, and, and on. Uh, Lord, we want those things. We want our life to be characterized by that. And so, Father, we just invite you to guide us. We pray that we would surrender to your Spirit's leading, that we would wake up every morning and think, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? When we're provoked, when, when people frustrate us, Lord, in those moments, more than, than any other, may we have that spirit consciousness, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, help us to remember everything that you want us to remember from today. In Jesus' name, amen.